And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this uh, new episode here. Live from the bunker, Jason Hunt. I am the editor at Sci-Fi For Me, and today... We get to our format that is the normal format for this show. It is an interview, a conversation, and I kind of, I kind of decided to do that little clever thing that I do. Uh, we are elevating the conversation by going deep, and today we are talking with uh, the makers of the movie Volition, Tony Dean Smith and Ryan W. Smith. They are brothers, and they apparently still get along. Uh, hello, gentlemen. Welcome. Uh, hello. Thanks for having us, Jason. We mostly get along. Yeah, we actually we get along so well that we're wearing almost the same shirt today. <laughs> yeah, this distance is actually helping us. So now, how many how many years are between the two of you in terms of who who? Because Tony, you're the older one. How how much how much time separates yeah. the two of you? Uh, we used to say Ryan used to say five years. I prefer four and a half. But, um, you know, the wisdom, uh, I'd steal the wisdom from him either way, even if he's younger. <laughs> yeah, what is time? I don't know. What is time? Exactly. So I want to I start because there's a, there's a lot of different things here in, in doing my research that, that I've run across that I find really interesting about uh, you guys and about your process. I watched the film last night. It's very interesting. Um, outside, I, I think my, my only personal complaint is the proliferation of f-bombs but other than that i thought it was a really good intriguing film uh it kept my attention the story the story is pretty solid all the way through uh and the recognizable faces was like oh i know that guy i know her uh it's funny because uh uh magda apanovich uh was in um Continuum, which is where I saw her, and I thought, okay, well, there's a bunch of Canadian actors in here, obviously. You guys are up in uh, Vancouver, and let's let's start with the movie then. So, so Volition is about what? Well, Volition is a grounded science fiction thriller uh, about a guy named James who has uh, clairvoyance. He's a psychic, but he's not He's not psychic, but he can see everybody's future. He can only see his for some reason. And it's not a superhero gift. It's actually an affliction. Um, it's actually a sickness. When he was seven years old, and our movie starts when he's around, you know, late 20s. But when he was seven years old, he had this nightmare of his mother in this sort of horrific car accident. And he never knew what it meant, but it was horrific. And he was a little artist when he was a kid, so he drew out what he saw. But nobody took him seriously, of course until two months later when that accident exactly how he saw it came true and so uh you know our james our protagonist has grown up sort of on the outskirts of society and he's lived through foster homes and he's just tried to make sense of his discombobulated um life and and the way he sees his life out of order and our story really starts off when for the first time ever james meets a woman who he actually sees a future with um because you know, you set up in the past that first of all, he's really wounded by the loss of his mother, so he can't really love openly again. Um, as well, he's sort of grown a bit shadier and a bit more kind of seedier because when you can just get a, when you can get away with 
your talents to do kind of not so good things, it starts to set in. So our story starts when James finally, you know, he meets this woman, but at the same time, he says yes to a, a deal, a diamond deal that he knows morally he probably shouldn't do. But as soon as he says yes, it sets in motion a series of events that basically leads to his own imminent murder. So somebody within the inner circle that you've set up is out to get him, he thinks. And um, everything he sees always comes true. So it's this, uh, it's this race against time and fate that him and Angela go on to try and um, save his own life. But the more he tries to get away from it, the closer it brings him to the event. So it's this great, you know, paradox and... Now you mentioned you know everything that he everything that he sees comes true. Uh, it 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 makes me think of you know everything is true from a certain point of view because how you see something uh, in in precognition a lot of stories uh, will show you know people see bits and pieces and snippets of the future and they do everything they can to avoid it and it plays out in a way that's different from what they interpret. Right. Yeah. You know, well, I see this happening, but I don't have any context. So I yep. make an assumption that it's going to happen this way, and I go over here, I zig instead of zag to avoid that, and I end up making it happen. And it it feels like there's a little bit of that in this, but it also feels like James is doing whatever he can to avoid everything that he sees. And you know, you you get little bits and pieces of that in the characterization, you know, writing the stuff on the wall and, and, uh, you know, smoking pot and, and basically kind of letting his, his life go, uh, it seems on autopilot almost that, you Very know, much. he doesn't see this as a gift. It's a burden and I don't want to have anything to do with it. I'm going to do everything that I can not to use it. And I'm just going to sit here and, and veg on the couch for the most part. Was your starting point because a lot of a lot of comparisons to Memento have been made on this because of the different flashes of the precognition and whatnot? It, it was what was the seed of the story? Where did it start? How did how did you guys because you you two co-wrote it? Mm. Where did it begin? Um, do you want me to start off, right? I don't want to steal. Yeah, all no, the, uh, no, go for it. Of sure, Ryan will jump in here because of course he came on board at a very crucial time, but. It's, I mean, first of all, they say, write what you know. And so uh, a long time ago when I went to film school, uh, as a teenager, first of all, I was always late for everything. So uh, by the time I got to film school, I wrote a short film about a scientist who invents a drug that makes him early to everything. Um, but the drug made him perceptually early. So he was still a prisoner to his present time, but his mind was on a fixed future. And so that created this sort of original um, idea that it wasn't about a psychic who could see everybody's future. He could only see his own. Um, the story was cool. It was a short film, but it didn't have a lot of depth. had none of the characters. didn't have any of the themes that Volition had. So I put it away for a little bit. Um, and then a few years later, I was actually feeling very stuck in my own life, uh, in my film career. And I realized that, you know, my, uh, my fear of the future, of never making it, never making the movie, was actually a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, sort of what you're talking about, where I was seeing something in the future and I was placing a meaning on it, on it, and it was sort of like rendering me a bit apathetic. You know, I wasn't forcing any change. So I realized that actually that that was the character piece missing to that old story. What if it was somebody who was stuck because of what they saw in the future and how could you get them to break through it? So I wrote a very first draft. Um, 
Ryan was involved all the way through, really, because him and I always talked story. And so along the way, he had been pitching me uh, and he liked what I had written. And I wrote a sort of very chronological version of Volition, not at all what you see now. And Ryan was pitching me on this idea of turning clairvoyance structurally in on itself. And so I don't know if you want to take it from here, Ryan, but that's where our process started together. Yeah, I mean, I you know, watching Tony kind of go through the stages of writing that first draft um, and talking about it with him, I was always really intrigued by this. I thought I thought he landed on a, a unique kernel of an idea with clairvoyance. And, you know, Tony's always been interested in a lot of esoteric reading. And so he was thinking about what are possible roots of clairvoyance and where does it come from? And, you know, is there a, a unique explanation for what it might be? And so you know, our film explores some of that. And um, when I came on board, yeah, we started to look at the process of clairvoyance and see if we could mirror that structurally in terms of, you know, you're in this sort of fixed loop when you, James is in this fixed loop of um, everything he sees always comes true. And so how could we have that process play out in the structure of the film? And so it, it took us on this, you know, crazy journey of trying to solve a pretty heady puzzle and uh, and do so while still maintaining uh you know breakneck speed and, and a thriller vibe that you know we we really like movies that are both thought-provoking but also entertaining we didn't want to bore anybody and so we really tried to mesh those uh those pieces together with the writing and uh, making of volition now the the use of precognition and, and you know, the the flashes of the future what kind of research went into some of the some of the more foundational concepts? I don't want to get too far into spoiler territory here, but when you're talking about some of the different things that show up in this film, yeah. some of it is, you know, you're you're doing some science in terms of, you know, how the mind works, how the brain works, how consciousness works. Um, there's some philosophical uh, stuff in here uh, in terms of predestination or choosing your own fate. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things that I thought of in in one particular scene reminded me of that uh, phrase from the Terminator movies: "There's no fate but what we make." You know, this idea of having a choice or not are are your choices already mapped out for you? And and uh, I was reading. Uh, the the review in Rue Morgue uh, mentions uh, the book The Passion According to G.H. by by Clarice Lispector. And the quote that they pull, the mystery of human destiny is that we are fated, but that we have the freedom to fulfill or not fulfill our fate. Realization of our fated destiny depends on us. And it kind of turns, this movie kind of turns that whole idea on its ear can you control your future or is this something, you know, you know, God's already got everything mapped out or, you know, destiny or fate or providence and you're just along for the ride or are you? Did that, did that factor in, in, in all of the conversations you guys had, was there this idea of really drilling down into that because it seems to be a driving a driving force in the in the story thread. Yeah, it, it was uh, all the way through. You know, Ryan and I again, we love we love movies, we love entertainment. But for us, you know, it has to have a 
bit more substance for us to kind of want to sink our teeth into something for a couple of years or, or five years, whatever it may be. So yeah, we proudly actually did a lot of, first of all, research into these fields. Um, we're by no means, you know, physicists or scientists. Um, we're we're movie geeks, but we love we love research. And so we did. We we looked a lot into quantum physics, into concepts of the multiverse versus the universe uh, entanglement. Um, you know, we we're looking at the Einstein Rose, the Einstein Rosen effect as far as uh, wormholes, which uh, we don't want to get into as far as what that relates to, but um, the roots of it was always about human psychology, first of all, and that when we feel stuck um, and when we feel trapped by our own brains, what's happening on a, on a deeper level is, you know, chemically, we're actually being completely run by those, those wounds and those thoughts. And so very often we need like a massive um, external force to pull us into a new territory. Um, so, you know, was that force that comes in, is that something that's destined to happen or is it, are we actualizing ourselves in the moment to make that happen? That's, these were the questions we were wrestling with and still are. And it's certainly manifested in the title itself of Volition. Now we have, um, a, have the ability to choose. We have a, uh, a comment in the live chat. Clairvoyance and psychics in general are usually handled so badly in fiction. You guys doing it well would be such a thrill, fun, and thought-provoking. Mm -hmm. uh, thought and, yeah, and mentioned Scientology. Uh, Scientologists say we call to ourselves the good or bad to ourselves, even blame people for their misfortunes for being hurt by others' decisions and actions. So, so this idea that we're in control of the things that happen to us, or are we in control of everything that happens around us? That you know that whole butterfly effect yeah. uh, thing that all comes into play as well. But there's a there's a spiritual aspect yeah. to it as well. And Tony, yeah. you even you you won an award for your short film Reflection, uh, mm. which is a paranormal drama, but it was at the Spiritual Cinema Festival that you won first prize. Correct. Is is there a spiritual aspect to the work that you guys do? Do you all talk about the the metaphysical parts of of what's in your stories? We do. We do. I mean we are we are enamored with existence. You know, I don't think any of us know what it is. We know we're here. We know we're exploring, um, you know, what it is to be human on a planet in the middle of the universe. So certainly um, my earlier work had that sort of spiritual side to it, not in a religious way, in a very sort of non-dogmatic way. Um, and volition, you know, underneath it all. And again, we're going to get into some philosophy here. But the idea being that, you know, if we are responsible for ourselves through time, and that's just a concept, you know, um, where does that responsibility end? Is it possible that I may have the same wound until it's healed? Life after life after life. We don't know if that's true. Um, and so in a way, my environment um, shapes me, but I'm also reacting to my environment. And it's actually very related to story in some ways. We always build characters perfectly set up to go against their world. And I feel that we might be the same as humans in existence. Do you want to jump in here, Rod, before I go? Down? Yeah, I mean, I also, I also think that that question of fate and free will, I mean, that was such a huge part of this ex exploration for us. And, you know, we start to explore the idea of like, well, is it possible that you can both be fated towards something and also be choosing? And it kind of depends on your perception or your viewpoint in the given moment. Right. In the moment, you're choosing and it's a real choice. And yet, if you look in hindsight, you were destined to make that choice. Um, and so 
you know, James as a character falls into the apathy of knowing that it's going to come true. But is it possible that that apathy is the, the element that makes it come true in the way that, that he negatively perceives it as? Whereas if, if he strived towards something else, making the change, maybe the same thing would happen, but perhaps it would be slightly shifted or his perception of it would, would change what it means for his life. So it's this weird needle head of, uh, or pinhead of like the same moment, but could it be a slightly shifted moment based on your perception? Now, is that when, when you guys were talking about uh, the relationship between James and Angela, because she's a, she's, she's sort of a, a monkey wrench that gets thrown into this in terms of, uh, you know, well, he sees a future with her. He sees a future without her. There's that, there's that question of what, what is her place in all of this story? Was that a twist and let's complicate things or are we adding the romance angle in there just so we can have that part in to give, basically raise the stakes for James? Because if it's just him, he sees his own future. Well, there's not much value to my life anyway. This ends everything. Okay, fine. But now you put her in the mix, and that changes the dynamic of everything. How how much how important was it to have that dynamic in the the overall thread of all of the narrative that was going on with the with the precognition? Um, very important. Yeah, Angela um, on many levels represents uh, almost like the exact opposite um, mode of operation. To, to James, you know, Angela, the character had a very tough life and, you know, there's hints of it. Um, but she basically refuses to give into, you know, fate. She refuses to say that, oh, it was meant to be, therefore I'm meant to be messed up my whole life. She is someone who's going to fight really hard for making change. So, you know, so she's sort of diametrically opposed to James in that way. And he actually needs her. You know, he's someone, I think that's why we, we brought her in. Um, I mean, first of all, he's so wounded by the loss of his mom that he's never been able to like love again ever since. So Angela, I think, represents new hope for him. And also she represents what it might be like if James ever had to become active, really, in his choices. Because she's so present and he's so not, actually. And that's the difference between the two of them. Yeah, and I also think Angela, um, you know, she's, she's in there as... Uh, Another example of how to live life for sure, but also because if she if she weren't there, you know, what would James have to lose in his life, really, because he's apathetic to it. And um, she's a reminder of what what else life has to offer. I mean, she's you know, she's a character in her own right, of course, and she's got her own journey. Um, but for James and from his perspective, it's the first time that he connects to the joy that's out there and the possibility for a, a future that is somehow outside of this perception trap that he's otherwise been in. Question in the chat: You mentioned uh, volition being being the title, having having that as an element in the in the story. And we talk about volition and free will. Are you using those terms interchangeably, or or are you putting specific, significant definitions on those two terms? Is there a difference uh, in terms of, of how you guys see this and, and how it applies to the story? Um, what do you think, Roy? I think pretty, 
pretty standard usage of it. The ability to sort of use one's own um, power to to choose an event, to choose a trajectory. Yeah, that's how I, I read it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, we, I think we were using it fairly connected those two terms, but I, uh, there is something underneath volition for us that feels like an even extra push, you know, where it's, it's not just the ability to choose, but you're really digging into yourself and using your volition, um, which James is challenged with, uh, you know, particularly, you know, as, as the movie unfolds. Now, as you're putting this together, you're in pre-production, uh, you guys are up in Vancouver. You're there. I see a lot of Canadian actors in here. Are, are these all people that, you all knew before. I know you guys went to school with Adrian Glenn McMoran, uh, who plays James. Um, and and uh, in the in the Dread Central interview, Tony uh, Adrian said you were you were ahead of him in high school. You were the cool guy and a little super intimidating. <laughs> he says, uh, and yeah. and uh, he was in theater classes with Ryan. How how did? Uh, your relationship, your history with Adrian Factory, and did that give you a little bit of a shorthand on on references and and how to approach this character? You you say, oh, it's like Bobby in shop class. Remember him? <laughs> you know, something like that. Or or was this all a unique approach? Because you know, given given what's going on in the story. Yeah, there was no uh, there was no callbacks to Bobby in shop class, but there were a lot of callbacks because we have such a long history together. Um, I was definitely always the uh, cooler, older brother. And now I'm just the older brother. It's just uh, that's what happens <laughs> through time. But, um, you know, Adrian uh, was just such a talent all through high school. And um, so I was a little older, so I did my theater, my plays, and I watched him do his. And then out of film school, sorry, out of high school, I made a student film that he was actually one of the leads in. Uh, it's, it's never gone out there, but it um, just always had this real authenticity about him, um, both as an actor, as a musician, and he's just an incredible musician. And so um, I think the shorthand was more that through time we had talked about love and loss and vulnerability, and we had gone to some of these places of, you know, we're both artists, we're both trying to, to make something of ourselves in the world. And uh, what's it like with, you know, with success and then setbacks. And so we could talk about a lot of that as it related to James, because, you know, um, I think doing anything of value is, is difficult. And like birth, it kind of should be, it almost tests you. And Ryan and I felt very often like we were sort of Sisyphus every day, pushing this rock up the hill. We, <laughs> we celebrate our success and it comes rolling back down. And sometimes that's life too. And so, Adrian and I, I think, bonded on that level. And um, the rest of the cast, yeah, all Vancouver-based. Ryan and I have known, I think, all of them, really, just through different projects that we've worked on. And uh, came together came together quite easily. I think a lot of people were very hungry for um, for our our projects. You know, Vancouver is a wonderful city and does an incredible amount of, of service work. Um, and so this was just something that, because it was built from the ground up in Vancouver and it was about something a bit, you know, a bit different, you know, I think people were excited to jump on board. Having watched uh, Stargate for a, a number of years, I know that Vancouver has the ability to look at a number of different planets. Um, so it's, it's fun to see, you know, Vancouver as, as an actual city for once. <laughs> right. Right. Did, Not a planet. Did the setting... Did the setting factor into it at all, or is just you know small town somewhere in the middle, in just wherever any town or, or? 
Um, well, yeah, I mean, well, first of all, on the Stargate front, um, you know, Tony and I both have acting backgrounds is how we started in this world. And actually, if you look carefully at a couple Stargate episodes, I'm, I'm in a couple, uh, small little bit roles. So you're also in, uh, you're also in X-Files and, uh, Poltergeist, I understand. Well, Tony's in the X-Files and Poltergeist. So yeah, uh, it's pretty hilarious, but, um, yeah, the setting of Vancouver, we, we, yeah, we, we, it, we definitely played Vancouver as it is, but we Vancouver is a very beautiful, uh, pristine city in a lot of places, and we wanted our film to have a grittiness and the uh, the lived-in quality that really James as a character kind of personifies. And so we had to do some deeper digging to find spots of Vancouver that uh, have some edge. Um, and there's definitely there's definitely those spots here, and so um, we're proud to say that Vancouver's never looked uh, uglier. Uh, in the film. <laughs> yeah, one thing uh, as as a as a filmmaker myself, having done some short stuff, I know that a lot of times uh, you are trading on the favors of others uh, as far as you know getting getting locations, getting talent, getting uh, you know both on camera and behind the camera. How much of this was wheeling and dealing? you know, to get places like the diner and Elliot's house. And, you know, are these, you know, friends and family letting you come in and, and play or, or was there, you know, some real uh, negotiation that had to take place for some of these places? Um, I can speak to that a bit just because um, I sort of spearheaded the producing side of things, although Tony and I both have produced it, um, but it was very, you know, independent process for us. We, we partnered with Pally Productions and uh, they've been amazing and gave us a lot of freedom to, to get out there and, and make this. But certainly it's, you know, our, our budget level is, is lower than your studio film out there. So we had to look for unique ways to, to uh, really stretch every dollar. Um, and the diner, for instance, is it's actually a, a spot that's close to where Tony was living at the time. And Tony and I would go in there and talk story and we'd actually like, you know, talk about the idea to shoot volition and we're like wait a second this place is perfect and so um we spoke to the owners and as it turns out they were connected with friends of ours from growing up and yeah we, they gave us a very generous uh basically deal to let us shoot there and um all the locations were really um you know some negotiation but also uh, a level of community support which uh which really, really helped us, you know, make this film happen. Now you guys, now, there was actually, oh, go, ahead. Go, ahead. Go, go ahead, Tony. I was going to say there was, um, <clears throat> there was a lot of luck really involved along the way. And it's funny. It almost feels like it was almost, um, you know, predestination as far as it was like meant to be. But, you know, speaking of like that diner where Ryan went to high school with the, the person who had lived there, who knew him, it was just very strange on the same block. We were coming out of our, uh, a meeting, where I lived, Ryan and I, and all of a sudden That's we hilarious. hear, uh, "Hey, Ryan!" And it's basically, um, uh, I can, can I, he's a police officer. Yeah. Basically, it's a police officer that Ryan knew from high school, who was uh, from theater, from theater school, from yeah. theater school, mm, from Ryan yeah. theater school, who's now a uh, a, uh, a police officer and uh, and an actor. And um, it just, I can't he's even like tell a really, you the amount. He's a big, he's a big burly yeah. guy. Yeah, and so. And I hadn't seen him in years, but to see him come out of this this car, we thought we were in like some huge trouble because uh, like yeah. these two undercover cops are approaching us. 
Um, but go ahead, Tom. Well, I mean, we basically, he, can we say who he, what he does? Sure. I mean, he goes by, by heel face. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So anyway, he plays the, um, the guy in the alleyway at the beginning who's kind of roughing up Angela. Uh, he's a phenomenal actor. Uh, he's a police officer who really just, uh, <laughs> for a moment, um, scared us as far as like, oh, are we in trouble? But everything just kind of fell into place. And, you know, Vancouver is notorious for raining especially in June, they call it January, and we didn't have a drop of rain. Hmm. And of course, the film needs to have a consistent look for it to, to work. So luckily, I think a bunch of favors and luck fell into place. Now, the the one thing, we've, we've got a, a pretty strong, thriving film community here, independent film community here in Kansas City. And there are a lot of, you know, everybody knows everybody and, and you know, there's, a, well, I need... I need a warehouse location. I need an apartment location. I need uh, this prop or that that costume or whatever. And you know, the fact that you guys grew up in Vancouver, I, I would imagine probably helped with some of that. But but you haven't been in Vancouver all your lives. You moved there when you were teenagers. You guys are actually from Johannesburg, South Africa. Yeah, correct. I was twelve, uh, and Ryan was, I was seven and seven, a half or so. Seven yeah. and a half. So, specific. how much culture shock was there going from one to the other, or was there? Um, I mean, well, yes, I mean, of course, but I think what people probably don't realize, especially from North America, is that um, you know we grew up in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we just, my God, America is the beacon, always was the beacon, and so we loved American entertainment, and we grew up with American movies and with American idealism. And, you know, South Africa didn't have any of that. So we just loved, you know, all the filmmakers, the American filmmakers, and we wanted to just kind of be like them. So by the time we came to Canada, I think we were prepped as far as um, understanding pop culture, but it's still an adjustment. And so a lot of our early years actually were spending time together, making short films and, uh, and you know, bonding that way. So, um I think it's also given us some perspective. You know, we we're we're sort of we're not we're South African Canadian. We we want to be Americans. We you know we're all, we're we're all of those things. Um, so, but it was difficult. Rides, you want to jump in? Yeah, um, I think it's definitely shaped us, and particularly that sort of process of immigration, like Tony's saying, is when you don't when you feel like a bit of an outsider to the mainstream culture, you do tend to stick together and. For us, you know, luckily we had influences in our lives that that encouraged us to be creative, and um, we would just spend all our free time making things. And um, it, you know, it's it's really just the same process that we're doing now um, from when we were kids. And um, you know, for others out there that are also you know creators, uh, I'm sure many of your listeners are are writing or, or making things. Um, yeah, it, it's kind of like digging into maybe some of the challenges in your life and using that as inspiration for the worlds you can create and the, you know, the, the excitement you can build and share for others. A question in the chat. Did you ever adapt to the cold? <laughs> um, you know, I've only just started using an umbrella. So let's put it that way. I've been in denial for a uh, for a good couple of decades, wherever it's been. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you you mentioned wanting to be Americans, you know, to come over here and 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 be part of that process. Have have you th had thoughts of emigrating into the United States at all, or you guys are fine in Vancouver? We'll just kind of 
stay a little bit removed from everything going on right now? Um, uh, go ahead, Ryan. Well, I mean, uh, I'll let Tony speak as well. But I mean, I I did have a, a visa to be down in the States. And so for the past, I just moved back to Canada uh, a year ago. But I was living in L.A. for a little bit. Um, and for sure, I mean, I, I, I love I love it down there. And um, I, I plan to go back. And I'm sure the same with you, Tony. Yeah, same for me. It's still it's still the dream. I mean, we're very happy. We're very happy here and our family's here. So it's home now. But um, there's a reason why uh, the United States, California, Hollywood um, has made the kind of inspiring content that has um, sort of penetrated our dreams. You know, we want to do the same thing for, for ourselves and then for other kids as well to watch movies. So definitely still the dream. Now, not to get too far into the political weeds here, but you, it is it is a, a thing that I've seen in a number of places where you look at the internal turmoil and the conflict that's going on here. A lot of people who come into the United States from the outside from other countries are looking at this thinking, okay, you, you certain certain aspects of what you're fighting for rioting for and 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 advocating for you really don't want because i just came from a country that does that and here's why it's bad um is as as you know kids in south africa now in canada is the perspective from the outside when you look at what's going on here in the United States? Is, is that a, a shaking your head moment? or Because you have a little bit of an outside perspective coming from other countries that have different government systems. How does, how does this feel watching what's going on here? Well, it's complex, obviously, first of all, and uh, we're very sensitive to the, the number of variables that are at, at play. Um, you know, I think, I, I think, I mean, first of all, it's such an incredible, um, such an incredible, again, I'm Canadian, South African, I don't, almost don't have a right to, to speak, but like, we, we look at America as such a, an example of what could be, you know, you have 50 states, essentially 50 countries trying to form this perfect union and it's, and it's a process. And so I think Ryan and I are just very hopeful that the perfect union just comes about because we're not there yet. I don't think the world is there yet. And I think the United States can still be the model, the example of togetherness that it always strives to be. You know, I think so. I don't know. That's what I would say from my perspective. Yeah. yeah and I, I also think you just from an outside perspective, you know, if you just look at the, the, the news cycle in, in the States, which we, you know, we follow closely here. Uh, the rhetoric on all sides is just really um, pushed to the extremes. You know, like everything is uh, very combative. And when you watch the news in Canada, it's just different because there's actually less um, opinion in the Canadian news. It's more, here are some facts and you as the viewer can make up your mind. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that structure seems to have fallen away in some of the, uh, the media landscape in the States. And, you know, I, I'm hoping that, you know, as we move forward, there will be more true dialogue uh, happening as opposed to just people shouting at the extremes because we all need to listen to each other and we're all the same. We you know we're, we're, we're humans. And so 
uh, both sides have valid points and I think we need to start listening to each other more and um, and yeah, you know, it's not really related to abolition entirely, although sure. human struggles that we all can all identify with. Well, and and has yeah. has this I'm I'm sure you guys have had some conversations about it. Has it led to any ideas for stories that maybe okay, well, maybe we can take this and take that and take this bit pieces and maybe put it into something? Or is this kind of a third rail? You're just like, no, we're not we're not going to touch this one right now. Maybe we'll circle back to it at some point. No, we are actually we're we're greatly affected by you know the happenings of the world, and we always have been. Um, you know, in so many ways, volition was sort of the smallest thing we could try and get off the ground. Um, but yeah, we care greatly about sort of social social issues. And we love, for example, like the Twilight Zone or Black Mirror, the way that they can deal with, um, you know, taboo topics or something that's a bit uncomfortable. So certainly we're, um, yeah, we have some plans for some content that's related to volition in some ways, but it also touches upon some of the world events right now. I want to circle back a little bit to your, your talk earlier about uh, the smaller projects and the things that you guys did growing up as kids. Um, seeing some of the clips from your very, very early work, uh, it, it puts me in mind, it reminds me, my, uh, my cousin and I, when, when we were growing up, uh, we built the bridge of the Starship Enterprise out of cardboard boxes in the garage. <laughs> And I was always Spock because that's the way the shirts fit. (laughs) So Ryan, let me ask you with Tony being the director and being the older brother and being, uh, the one, the one who was the, the super intimidating, cool one, (laughs) one. how much, and I don't want to get too, too personal here, but how much brotherly conflict has factored into, uh, the discussions you guys always get along or was there a time when it was uh, you know fisticuffs at 10 paces and and such right what's your what's well, your process for working together first of all i just want to you know correct the record that i think you know when adrian said tony was the cool intimidating one <laughs> he neglected to mention anything about my coolness but <laughs> i think it's because he's still intimidated of me and so he's just like you know staying clear um keep dreaming keep no, dreaming <laughs> tony was definitely uh the cooler one. Um, but, you know, growing up, yeah, it, you know, definitely in those early years, you know, Tony was older. Um, there was definitely a period of time where uh, there was like some, some teasing and things like that, that I eventually, well, I'm still dealing with on some level, but no, I'm, I'm over, but I'll apologize they very, forever. They were very creative ways of uh, playing with me. I mean, when we were kids, <laughs> uh, I was probably five, and Tony was already into Hitchcock and kind of playing with like ghost stories. And he rigged up one of my sister's terrifying uh, baby dolls and rigged it up onto a pulley system outside my, my second floor or third floor bedroom at the time. And it would have this like floating demon baby outside my window while I'm sleeping um, to terrify me. So sort of a cinematic uh, bullying, um, <laughs> which I yeah. appreciate it. Um, but no, as, as we got older, I mean, all of that eased up and we started to just see each other as creatives. Um, and we have this very unique, uh, process of working together where we will, we'll talk things through and, um, we may not always be on the same page, but through enough discussion, we come to understand, you know, what are the base assumptions under the other person's idea? And, uh, 
it's kind of rare because I think a lot of brothers don't have that, but we've, I think we just both respect each other's work. And so we respect each other's ideas. And so if we don't fully get where somebody's coming from, we'll have them pitch it over again and again until we can go, okay, I, I see, I see that. And also we're, we're quite honest with each other, just sort of brutally honest when we don't think something is working. Um, you know, we've both, we've worked together and then we've also written and created stuff on our own. And so I think the process of, of being together and apart has sort of built muscles for each of us that we, we now come together with like our own toolkits that combined, you know, we think creates something even, even more uh, dynamic. You mentioned Hitchcock as a, as an influence for Tony uh, and that, that, gives me the entry point here for asking about the noir influences on on volition because there does mm-hmm. seem to be an element of that you have a you have a voiceover in the beginning and you have a lot of shadow and dark and light and a lot of contrast in the cinematography were there particular films that you went back to to as references for for visual styles and and pace and and the kind of things well we reveal this much but not this mm-hmm. much uh, how did how did that factor into it you mentioned hitchcock what what else did y'all look at yeah it was it was a bit of a melange because um there's a number of influences that uh, that affect uh the film and certainly my style i mean i think the first thing going in was knowing that we had an impossible script to shoot in a very very short amount of time so what I would have loved to have done visually, um, time wouldn't have allowed it. You know, I love lyrical camera work and dolly shots or steady cam, but we just couldn't do it knowing that, you know, a 112 page script is quite deceiving with this script because if you've seen the movie, you know why, but um, a scene is not just a scene. And so um, the earliest, you know, the earliest influence being uh, Spielberg and Hitchcock. And what I loved about those guys, at least when I was a kid was, um, and when I was a kid, I was shooting in camera and editing in camera, I should say. So hmm. Volition was almost shot that way. I knew I could only have enough time to get certain shots. So right. I would get the door opening in a close-up. Then I'd cut to the wide shot of them entering. Then I'd cut to the medium over the shoulder. So that influenced how I had to shoot the film. I couldn't just roll cameras everywhere and then just make my choices in the edit. I had to almost make my choices in the moment. So that's just more, more like an overall approach. Um, it's and almost like when just, uh, when Robert Rodriguez did his first film it is. with, you know, yeah, okay, El I'm going to shoot here, move this, move this, move this, and and cut it together yeah. in the camera. It seems like yeah, a lot yeah. of a lot of lower budget films are made that way to start with. Yeah. yeah, and you know, I come from. I mean, I was on the cusp when I was in film school. We were. Uh, I was like the last generation to use film, and so that early training of. You know, you can't just burn digital footage forever. You really have to make a choice mm. and you have to live and die by that choice. And, you know, there's so many elements of volition that I'll be like, oh, wow, I wish I had a bit more time or, you know, another angle. Um, but it has to be made that way. And that actually is a very noir influenced sort of decision making process, because from what I've heard back in the noir days, the reason why you had such strong key lighting, big shadows, interesting wonders is because they didn't have time. So they would basically set one nice key light up and it would create a big shadow. And then they would have this very purposeful, um, you know, camera design. And yeah, I think that's sort of what we did. And then I just came back to David Fincher all the time. If I was stuck, I'd be like, what would Fincher do? Uh, in that moment of time, I just, I was really into his, 
very pristine, locked off style. And I thought that might lend itself to volition because we had to shoot it that way. I, I think also, you know, aside from the actual shot selection and the the look of the film, it also just has a built-in noir element of a, a whodunit, but sort of with a sci-fi yeah. cerebral twist of, you know, James knows he's going to die and he doesn't know who's going to kill him. Uh, but, and so there's this element of like that mystery that often, you know, supports a noir right. film. Now, uh, one of the things, uh, uh, question in the chat about filming in sequence, this is not something that you're able to do with this kind of a film. Um, you've got, you've got 112 pages. You've got to shoot it in a certain particular order and make it so that all of the different pieces of it line up in a specific way. Uh, Adrian McMorrow talked about keeping a chart so he could keep track of where he was in his head for James at the time. Okay, well, in this scene, I'm I'm here mentally and emotionally and, and here. It, is that... Because I know, Tony, you've got a background in editing and you talk about shooting and editing and camera. There is a lot of that in play here as far as making sure... You know, the story is built in the editing in such a way that it's easy to follow because it, this could, if it's not done right, this story could go off the rails really quick and, and, and people yeah. could get lost and go, hey, wait a minute, what's going on? But uh, the way it's cut together, uh, it flows very well. You can, you can follow the story, you know exactly what's going on all of the time. Uh, and even with the reveals, the reveals are those aha moments that call back to earlier uh, parts of the film, and it and it and it shows that you guys were very careful in planning it all out. Did you have a lot of rehearsal time? Did did you did you have a lot of time to to play with all of that and 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 peel that out as far as? You know, figuring out, okay, well, this happens and it leads to this, and this happens and it calls back to this. Or was it just one of those things where we just get it if we get it because we don't have a whole lot of time to shoot it? Right. Um, a, a mixed bag, certainly. But I think from the get-go, you know, Ryan and I were very, very particular about the script. So, you know, the script um, was a good read. It was an enjoyable read. And then it got to like, like those sort of reveals that got a little trickier. And Ryan and I were always concerned about, you know, making sure the reader was still able to follow along. Um, and, you know, we actually once upon a time actually had a, in the script, we had a, a one page sort of like, dear reader, things are about to get very confusing, just so you know, <laughs> you know, and we basically had a breakdown. And then I was reading, I think I was reading Interstellar, the script, and Christopher Nolan and Jonathan Nolan were talking about their complexities in their writing. And they just said that, you know what, if somebody doesn't get it on the first read, that's okay. So that was our approach going forward. Let's just trust in ourselves, first of all. And then that got into the planning of the shoot itself where, you know, it's it sort of landed on, on me as the director. Ryan had so many fires to, to put out creatively, logistically all over the place that it was up to me to sort of reinterpret my shot list and storyboards to realize where we were. We didn't have a lot of rehearsal time. Um, I think we rehearsed the fights. Um, otherwise, it literally came down to the prep that I had done and then just the actors just being really, really, uh, you know, perfectly in the moment. They understood what was going on. And so we would block a scene and I would then show them, okay, we're blocking this scene, but just so you're aware, here are the other layers of this scene. So there was a global approach to every scene we blocked and then we would tackle it sort of 
layer by layer. And it's so, and I, I, go ahead, Ryan. Just speaking to some of that prep work as well. I mean, you know, in the script phase where it was, where is that section where things get a little bit crazy? Um, you know, Tony and I, when we were pitching the film, Tony ended up creating uh, an, a, an animatic, uh, which was actually like a, a visual way to give to somebody as you're pitching it, that they could see the full layout of the scene before we'd shot it. And yeah, that ended up being hugely helpful. And, um, you know, maybe that's something we'll, we'll share with the world at some point. And go on the, on the special, the special uh, features for the DVD. I yeah. Yeah. So exactly. um, the, the way, the way you're blocking, you talk about blocking the fight scenes and some of the different things that are going on and the layers. Uh, there's a, a little bit of sleight of hand in some of this as well. You're looking at one thing and you don't realize that something else is, mm. is a thing until it becomes a thing. Is that the magicians in your background? Is that, is that kind of, you know, you don't see what's in this <laughs> hand because this hand is over here. How much, how much did you factor into that with, with what your dad, and your grandfather did? Yeah, guilty as charged. Uh, go for it, Ryan. Do you wanna? Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. So Tony and I, uh, speaking of like sort of the creative background we came from, um, yeah, our grandfather uh, was a magician as a hobbyist uh, in South Africa, and then you know he brought my father, our father, into it. And uh, our dad actually was you know on the road to becoming a professional magician and did some big shows in South Africa. And then as we grew up, uh, Tony and I both dabbled with magic and you know doing birthday parties and things like that. Um, and not so, cool. <laughs> not cool. Yeah, that was Tony's not cool side. I mean, yeah. I, I clearly didn't have to worry about losing that coolness. Um, <laughs> but uh, definitely, you know, the element of having uh, to convey something that can appear to be just totally awe-inspiring and have people lose themselves in the wonder of a given moment, while at the same time, secretly kind of having all these strings that you're pulling, um, you know, like a duck underwater with their legs flapping, but it looks very smooth on the top. Right. Um, we definitely had that approach with the writing where, you know, we wanted it to feel seamless. And yet there's a very intricate clockwork uh, going on in the film. And, and kind of ironically, our dad is now a jeweler. And so clockwork also kind of fits into, <laughs> into that precision. So, uh, question in the chat from Robert about using motifs in, in the film. Uh, is there use of color, any particular elements in the film that you said, okay, this has meaning. We're going to put this element here. We're going to put this element here. Are, are those uh, in the film in a, in a strong way or just kind of happenstance? Or does that factor into the process? Yeah. Yeah, it does. You know, I always love the, uh, the idea that when you um, create from a very, I think it's like authentic, as much as you try from an organic place that, these metaphors, these motifs, the symbolism appears in the film in, in ways that you didn't even expect. But there were planned moments where certainly James with his clairvoyance, you know, we have the motif of of the iris and that, that sort of plays through the film in many ways. And then as well, we have the symbolism of there's this rain, this 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 storm that you you eventually um, come to understand what the significance of, of that motif is. Um, and and then certainly I think the the feel of the film, it has a real grounded, sweaty, gritty feel. And that is, that's rooted in James, the character. 
And so I think that's the motif that we we adhere to. I think there's there's also a couple, you know, there's a few Easter eggs in some of the set deck and, uh, you know, certain influences of, of ideas and stuff that are kind of peppered throughout. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, let's do this. We've got a few minutes left. Let's uh, let's bring up the trailer for Volition. So people watching the show can't see that. Hopefully we won't get a copyright strike from YouTube on it. Right. Uh, so uh, <laughs> here we go. This is the trailer for Volition coming to screens tomorrow. Here we go. My mother died when I was seven years old in a car accident. I saw it two months before it happened. Jimmy in the flesh. So how's life? It's day to day, you know. I'm James. Angela. I got a proposition for you. I need you to do that thing you do in that head of yours. I need you to find safe passage for you. Oh, my dad. I warned you, didn't I? I had no choice. I needed the work. Of course you had a choice. It's not what I saw. How long have you been like this? It's more of an affliction, sadly. You make it sound like a disease. What about him saying that he saw the handoff? You know how many things are in that guy's head? Who knows what he saw? We're not safe here. We gotta go. You said you saw this working out. I did. And what happened? I don't know. Right now, you've got to do everything in your power to change this. You've got to leave now. What's You're beginning to fragment. You drilled it into my choices. This is going to be hard to understand. Maybe it's time you learned the truth about your condition. And it is uh, hitting screens tomorrow. I understand it's going to have a drive-in distribution as well as uh, uh, digital. Is that right? It's actually primarily uh, digital. So, you know, Apple TV uh, pre-orders are available now. And then it'll be pretty much on every VOD platform. Uh, the theatrical run was planned. But, you know, given the whole COVID situation, we're, we're figuring that out. So still a bit up in the air. Okay. All right. Well, we've got uh, we've got about four minutes left. Where can people find you online if they want to know more about everything here? Yeah. Um, I mean, personally, I'm at Tony Dean Smith. They can find me in all the usual suspects, social media wise. Um, the movie itself is uh, our website, volitionthemovie.com. And Ry, what else? Where else can they find? Yeah, I mean, and I, I'm also on Twitter at Ryan Warren Smith. Um, on Facebook, we're at Bullish in the Movie, um, really all over. Um, encourage people to check out the website because uh, you'll see a bunch of other content that we've created. And if you look at our YouTube and Vimeo page, you'll also find webisodes that we created uh, for the, during the making of the film. And so we actually go step by step through the whole process and you kind of we were living through it and you can kind of look back now and see how this all came together, which is um, fun and uh, some embarrassing moments in there, which I'm sure people will enjoy. <laughs> 
right. And we've we're... clearly aged about 10 years over the past two years, which is what happens <laughs> when you make movies. I, I, yes. I have been there myself. I completely yeah. understand that. Um, a comment yeah. in the chat, uh, and this is something that I, that I noticed, uh, the phone booth. Where did you, where did you find a payphone <laughs> <laughs> to, to yeah. include as, as a piece of this? Because nobody has them anymore. I mean, where did no. they come from? There are like one or two like in Vancouver, but not where we wanted them. So we actually, Tony Dirk, our production designer, wrangled that from, uh, I don't even know where. I just show up and <laughs> point the cameras. But um, where did he get that, Ryan? You know? uh, he got it from, there's a, there's a prop house in town. Um, and so, yeah, but we needed, we needed one that could be easily transported because obviously we didn't have a big transport truck. Um, right. And then there was... Uh, yeah, some interesting friend angling to to say get it to to exist where it existed. <laughs> uh, now let me ask you this real quick on the on the back end of this, and I don't know if this is significant or this is just something that I noticed. The names of your lead characters, James Odin and Angela, um, mm. is there uh, is there a, a a story behind the choices for their names? Because uh, it kind of. The first thing I thought of was was Marvel, of course, but North mythology, you know, Norse mythology. Um, does that play into how you create your characters in terms of their names and their influences? Does that mean anything? It definitely does mean something to us when we were designing the characters from the ground up. But no, we did not, you know, have any attachments, or uh, we weren't working from Norse mythology or anything like that. But then later on, once the once the project was written at different stages i think ryan actually brought up that there's this really interesting norse mythology about um and i might be butchering this and getting this wrong but the idea that you know i'll give you foresight but you have to trade your your eyes right that's one of the stories yeah i'm not i actually i'm not sure we need to dig back but odin we yeah. were playing with odin back even with a short film version of this idea of yeah. aspects of odin and so it was almost like connected to that early short film idea as well but the idea do you have foresight? Uh, you can get that, but what are you going to give up? You know, well, you you will never be present ever again. That's a prison that we just really saw how that related to James. Um, and I think that's built into the myth as well. All right. Well, yeah. Tony Dean Smith and Ryan W. Smith, thanks very much for, for spending the hour with us talking about it. The movie is called Volition. It is not rated. It is available on digital video platforms starting tomorrow, and I believe it's available for pre-order on Apple TV now. And hopefully uh, it'll get a theatrical run, and uh, maybe we'll see it uh, on DVD and Blu-ray here pretty soon. So thank you, gentlemen. And uh, all thanks, of you, uh, all of you in the chat, thanks very much for joining us as well. And of course, as uh, as always, we do invite you to uh, subscribe to our channel, hit the notification bell so you know when we post new content. Uh, this show, right now, the plan is Monday through Thursday at noon central. You can find us here, and sometimes we have very interesting guests, and sometimes it's just me being my boring old self. So uh, <laughs> that's going to do it for us today. Thanks very much for watching, everyone. We will be back with more here on Sci-Fi for Me TV. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi for Me Radio. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.